Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, February 28th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page and website, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December 2018, we have featured over 100 poets from eight countries on five continents, and we would like to continue to highlight poets from around the world with your support. And you can do that by visiting poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or using your preferred credit card. With us today is Michael Buckius, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Brotherly Love, and my poem, Cheap Date. Before we turn to that, however, I'm going to go over some of the virtual poetry events taking place during the week of March 1st. On Monday, March 1st, from 8.15 p.m. Amsterdam time, Labyrinth will be hosting their weekly open mic, and you can find out more information at labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound sign events. Again, that's labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound sign events. From 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Writers Center will be hosting their Cafe Muse featuring Jane Clark and Terry Allen Cross Davis. You can find out more information at writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. Again, that's writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. From 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Clean open mic via Instagram live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their Meditation Monday writing workshop with Alex Petunia. You can find out more information at The Poetic Petunia on Instagram. Again, that's at The Poetic Petunia on Instagram. On Tuesday, March 2nd, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting its weekly first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 8 to 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Alexa Lash and Kiana Major will be hosting their creatively undistanced open mic. You can find out more information on Instagram at Major Muse. Again, that's at Major Muse on Instagram with Muse spelled as M-U-Z-E. From 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Dirty open mic via Instagram Live again at poets underscore playground underscore. On Wednesday, March 3rd, from 6 p.m. Amsterdam time, 
WordUp Amsterdam will be hosting their Inspiration Factory Writing Workshop by Janice. You can find out more information and register at wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops. Again, that's wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. From 7.30 p.m. British time, the Poetry Translation Center will be hosting The Cartographers by Mohan Rana, Readings and Discussion. You can find out more information at poetrytranslation.org forward slash events. Again, that's poetrytranslation.org forward slash events. From 8.30 p.m. Beirut time, Sidewalk Beirut will be hosting their online open mic. You can find out more information at Sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or Sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. Again, that's either at Sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or Sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. From 5 to 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Asian American Justice and Innovation Lab will be hosting the first of their A session, A Poetic Envisioning of Our Collective Future with Carol Scott. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash aajil.org. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash aajil.org. From 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Beyond Baroque Library Arts will be hosting their weekly poetry workshop with Beth Ruscio, and you can find out more information and register at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops dot html. On Thursday, March 4th, from 9 p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting their weekly open mic. You can find out more information at parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. Again, that's parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Cave Canem Poets will be hosting their Poets on Craft, Black Queer Memoirs with Pamela Sneed and Arissa White, moderated by May Sten Johnson. You can find out more information at caveconempoets.org forward slash event. Again, that's caveconempoets.org forward slash event. From 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The Museum of African Diaspora will be hosting their open mic night featuring Joyce Lee. You can find out more information at moadsf.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's moadsf.org forward slash calendar. From 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Gasher Journal will be hosting their virtual reading featuring our past poet guests, Oscar Mancinas and Josh Bettinger. You can find out more information at gasherjournal.com forward slash register. Again, that's gasherjournal.com forward slash register. From 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poet Society will be hosting their monthly Tonali Thursdays open mic. You can find out more information at lapoetsociety.org forward slash events. 
Again, that's lapoetsociety.org forward slash events. On Friday, March 5th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop. You can find out more information and register by messaging the host, Andrina Leanne, on Instagram at survivor.andrina.leanne. Again, that's at survivor.andrina.leanne. Andrina is spelled A-N-D-R-E-E-N-A. Leanne is spelled L-E-E-A-N-N-E. From 7 p.m. West African time, Graciano and Warham will be hosting his Corona vs. Open Mic via Instagram Live at Graciano and Warham. That's spelled G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. From 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Words Out Loud will be hosting their monthly open mic and literary trivia featuring Dane Servine and Margot Taff Stever. You can access the event at bit.ly forward slash 3q2jajz. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash 3q2jajz. The first J and the Z are capitalized. From 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Gasher Journal will be hosting the second of their virtual readings featuring C.R. Grimmer and Alex Moni Sari. You can find out more information and register at gasherjournal.com forward slash register. Again, that's gasherjournal.com forward slash register. From Saturday, March 6th to Sunday, March 7th, the University of Arizona, Arizona Daily Star, and TMC Healthcare will be hosting the virtual Tucson Festival of Books. You can find out more information and register at uapress.arizona.edu forward slash event. Again, that's uapress.arizona.edu. Edu forward slash event. From 9 to 11 p.m. Morocco time, Moroccan poets will be hosting their weekly open mic via Instagram live at Moroccan Poets. Again, that's at Moroccan Poets. From 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting their poetic self-portraits. It's all about me a workshop with Douglas Manuel. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org forward slash intensive underscore workshops dot html. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org forward slash intensive underscore workshops dot html. From 5 to 5.30 p.m. Arizona time, Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting their Speak Poet via Instagram Live at Arizona Masters of Poetry. Again, that's at Arizona Masters of Poetry. On Sunday, March 7th, from 5 to 7 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their monthly open mic at Poetry LGBT 
You can find out more information and register at Poetry LGBT on either Instagram or Facebook. Again, that's at Poetry LGBT on either Instagram or Facebook. From 6 to 8 p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting their monthly writers workshop. You can find out more information at parislitup.com, the hyphen writers hyphen workshop. Again, that's parislitup.com, the hyphen writers hyphen workshop. From 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, City of Asylum will be hosting their free association reading series. You can find out more information at cityofasylum.org. Again, that's cityofasylum.org. And now let us welcome our Poet Guest of the Week, Michael Buckius. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Nice to have you on. So you brought with you your poem, Brotherly Love. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I was raised by my mom mm -hmm. in a single-parent household. I'm an only child. Mm -hmm. I went to Temple University for my undergraduate studies, where I studied film and media. Mm -hmm. I got my MFA at Northern Arizona University. I've been published in some places. I have a chapbook that just came out at the beginning of September called Sarcasm through Tulsa Books. I really like the color blue. I think it's like just like a really solid color and like pretty neutral. <laughs> and I'm a sober person. I've been sober for almost six, six years. Mm -hmm. um, and I love Topo Chico, <laughs> which I'm currently drinking. So. Wait, what? Topo Chico? It's a carbonated mineral water. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It sounded like you moved away from the mic for a second when you said that. But did you say your favorite color was blue? Yes. Okay. How long have you been writing poetry? Where it was something that like I, I was like, I'm going to like sit down and take this seriously, I think since the age of 17. 17? 17, yeah. Okay. It was after my grandfather passed away mm. from cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, I was like listening to the radio head or something. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, I'm going to write a poem about what I experienced. And from that point on, it was just, just something that I did. Mm -hmm. I understand your grandfather just passed away. What made you decide to write poetry rather than just do a journal entry or something else? So when I was really young, maybe like 11 or 12, I did have Right. And I know at one point I went through all of those journals and I read them and then I destroyed them. <laughs> ah. But those kind of documented my like experiences, like trying to like talk to the opposite sex or like smoking pot for the first time. I mean, it was pretty embarrassing stuff, you know, <laughs> um, if you're like an 18-year-old reading a 12-year-old writing, right? Mm -hmm. So I did have a journal, and I was encouraged to do have that journal. I think like, by like it, someone in elementary school. But mm -hmm. I think poetry happened because I was listening to 
a lot of kind of movie music, mm-hmm. like Radiohead. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, lyrics are in this, you know, this poetic form. When I hear lyrics, I don't imagine prose. I don't imagine fiction or story. Like, I imagine them as poems. Mm-hmm. And I had been encouraged to write poems school and you know you have exercises in class where you write poems mm-hmm. um so yeah that's why i think it was song mm-hmm. um, music that pushed me towards that form. okay now is probably a good time for you to read your poem brotherly love for us okay brotherly love when you form two sewer rat tails into the shape of a heart By using only your fingertips and some low-grade animal tranquilizer, you are both an artist and welcome to the city of Philadelphia. The spotted pinkish tails in the shape of a heart stand for love, the brotherly kind. You carry this message of love with you. It's so brotherly, and even though you didn't have a brother, you understand it on a level that you refuse to explain to your mother. The concrete sidewalks of Philadelphia are covered in polka dots, sticky black ones. You think this is both charming and a nuisance. The Starbucks in Center City has a bathroom that locks. You find this very convenient and use it often to shoot brotherly love into your veins. The managers of all the bathrooms with locks have yelled at you, red-faced. You blame this on a lack of brotherly love. The inside of your jacket has dark little red spots. Hypodermic needles poke outwards from your back and arms and chest and give you the appearance of a hypodermic porcupine. Your mother calls, and you try to explain how much love is in you and around you, but she just cries and buys you a plane ticket to the desert where you sweat out all the brotherly love in the stifling heat, and then you wait for the sun to go down and realize that palm trees against your stubbly sunset face is both a positive shadow and welcome home. Thank you. When did you write this? I wrote this poem, I think, late last year. Mm-hmm. Definitely um, before the pandemic. Okay. Yeah, I wrote it in December of last year. Okay. When you were telling us about yourself before, you said you've been sober for six years now. Yeah, about that. So after five years, what made you decide to write this poem? Um, I think maybe because I haven't written a lot about it yet. Mm. I mean, I haven't really written about like the addiction part of my life that much mm-hmm. because like I'm trying to figure out how to express my experience mm-hmm. like a unique way to express it because like there is a lot of addiction writing mm-hmm. and I don't just want to write another memoir right you know I, I kind of want to write with my own like kind of strange voice mm-hmm. so I'll probably continue to write about it for the rest of my life mm-hmm. do you know when about that you started writing about your experience with addiction? I mean, I think I've always written about it, even when it was still going on. Mm -hmm. But the first time I can, like, really recall it happening was probably, like, seven years ago. Mm. Like, I still have one of those poems. It was, like, during a period of sobriety that I wrote about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, That was one of the pieces that made it into my thesis. Okay. Um, One of the few from that time. When I first started reading the poem, I thought you were going for funny. 
and it was funny. And then, obviously, you come to the realization of what you're talking about. And then it just becomes really kind of horrifying in, in the sense of this view that you're giving people while you're calling it brotherly love, referring it to Philadelphia. Would you consider this satire? I don't think I'd consider it satire because it's not like a, I'm not satirizing like myself, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which I have done, mm-hmm. but I'm not like really trying to do that with this. Mm-hmm. But typically when I write, like I, I do try to infuse a lot of my writing, especially with difficult subjects, mm-hmm. I try to infuse it with humor. Mm-hmm. Because I think within humor, there's like this place for healing mm-hmm. and there's this place for like an open dialogue. Whereas people may be uncomfortable talking about a specific subject, once it's approached through humor, there can be like more of a connection made. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess people are, you can feel disarmed by it. Yeah, and that's actually kind of how like I approach when I do like public reading. Mm-hmm. I approach it as like almost like a stand up comedy routine mm. where I'll like open with some more humorous pieces and then kind of really read some pieces that are like heavier in terms of like the subject matter Mm -hmm. Um, just because like the humor disarms people and once they're in that vulnerable space where they're laughing then you can come at them with like something like really serious and something that they have to think about Mm -hmm. so it's 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 a technique that i bring to reading and writing Mm -hmm. um yeah First of all, did this thing actually happen? Not the middle paragraph, but the first paragraph with the rat tail. No. I mean, I've had experiences with, like, dead rats in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. but I never touched their tails. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. It's just so vivid. In a way, it sort of makes people feel like you felt invincible. The first stanza? Mm-hmm. Or the whole thing? I would say the first stanza. This sense of like you are having fun even if it's something like sewer rats let's say people just read the first paragraph you know it could go either way for them because when you talk about low-grade animal tranquilizers i'm not sure that people would think that maybe you are taking it rather than you know maybe you are using it on the rats so it seemed like a very kid thing to do and you seem very young there even though it's not a real experience it seemed like you were being a kid, dealing with everyday things that are not obviously not the greatest conditions of the city, but that you were still enjoying things and that you were making the best out of something. Yeah, and you know it's interesting that that you say that, and I'm also glad that that kind of came across. Like in terms of like early stages of addiction, mm-hmm. even like mid stages. Particularly in Philadelphia, I mean, I hate to say it, but like, it was kind of fun. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason that I kept doing it. Right. And the thing is, like, I was just, I was just a baby. You know, I was just a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were to put like a, like an age on this, between like 22 and 24, I think was kind of like where this comes from. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, yeah, I guess I'm an adult, but like, I don't really know what I'm doing. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's the thing is like I try and like really speak openly and honestly about the addiction 
aspect of my writing and my life. And it's, yeah, you know, like, it's fun. Like, it can be fun until it's not anymore. And then at that point, like, you're just trapped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, and that's the nature of addiction, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I think about, like, this time, I never get, like, a sense of realism, which mm -hmm. is kind of where, like, the sewer rat stuff comes from. Like, I don't think about that part of my life in any sort of, like, realistic way. Like, it's all, like, this odd dream slash nightmare that kind of, like, comes back to me in flashes. Mm -hmm. It's really it's unusual mm -hmm. to just think about, yeah. I really in, enjoy is not the right word, but I guess I appreciate how you're progressing with this poem. Again, in the first paragraph, you feel like everything is just fine. He's making the best out of whatever situation, which is not great, but still, you know, he seems to be so happy. And then, then you talk about the polka dots, and then you tie it. The second paragraph, just as with the first, they're like their own little vignettes. They are self-contained in many ways. They seem to talk about different steps in your story, in your experience with addiction. When you started writing this, did you set out to write in this progression? Was that on purpose? Or you just wrote and this is what came out? I think part of it is intentional. Mm -hmm. I think like the first paragraph or stanza, it's weird because it's kind of like a prose poem, you know? Mm -hmm. I think I wrote the first stanza and then the second one came and I was like, okay, so each one of these is I knew that each each part was going to be like a different stage mm -hmm. in time, you mm -hmm. know, beginning with like this surreal, weird, you know, welcome to the city, I hope you're having fun type thing, and then it gets darker, and then it gets like really dark at the end. Mm -hmm. For the most part, it was intentional, yeah. Okay. And how much did you edit this, by the way? The last paragraph? A lot. There was a little editing in like the first and second paragraphs and the last, particularly the, well, it's just like all one like giant sentence, but the, the very end with like palm trees, like I, I really struggled with that. I talked with my thesis chair was Sherwin Gitsui mm -hmm. and he had like a lot of suggestions for the end of that. And I remember talking about that last line like more than any other part of of my thesis and I just couldn't figure it out you know like at one point there was like a box of crayons and like you know the word silhouette which I hate and like don't really want to use it in a poem of my own like silhouette like <laughs> um, I'd rather use the word shadow and describe what shadow looks like I don't need to use the word silhouette unless like it's really a silhouette you know, someone standing behind, like, a theater, movie theater screen or something. Um, yeah, I kept trying, trying to fix it, and then then I walked away from it. Mm -hmm. I was like, I was like, forget this, you know, like, I, <laughs> I can't do it. And I think I came back to it, like, a week or two later, mm -hmm. where I was just thinking about it one day, and it just came to me, and I, and I wrote how it is, because I like how stuff we sent that face is, like, a little playful. I'm not in love with the line, to be mm -hmm. honest. I'm not in love with the end, but like I, I do like how it's playful, like the beginning, and how Welcome Home I think works. And Sherman approved. He was like, "Yeah, yeah, that works. So keep that." 
I do revise like quite often. I didn't use the revise at all. I used to be like, but the poem is what it is. And anything, uh, if I revise it too much, it's just not pure, which is a stupid way to think about poetry. Because <laughs> you know? um, like half of, sometimes more than half of poetry is revision. Mm-hmm. And like that point was really like hammered home, taking like Sherwin's class and sitting and, and talking with him because he explained to me like how much he revises and how much time is spent on just like a line. And I was like, okay, like, I like that. You know what I mean? That's one of the reasons I was drawn to poetry is because it is something I can consume quickly, but mm-hmm. think about for a really long time mm-hmm. and then go back to and then analyze, like, the minutia mm-hmm. uh, of the word, of the line. But, yeah, that was a long, like, winding answer to that question. Okay. it's great, actually, because, first of all, you made me realize apparently Sherwin is everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, I kind of feel good hearing that he edits a lot because I mean, I only heard the beginning of his the book. Darn it, I forget the name of it, the latest one. And it was just like gorgeous, gorgeous. I just floored by it. So I'm glad to hear that because I was just like, man, if everything come out of your pen just like just like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really grateful. That I got the opportunity to to work with him, and, and you know I try and like stay in touch, but it's the fall semester, so he's teaching like another huge workshop at NU. Mm-hmm. Um, besides learning that from him, another thing was just like the level of detail. Like a lot of times, there was like another poem that I, I sent you that we're not talking about, mm-hmm. and I won't talk too much about it, but it was like a detail of like a cat, mm-hmm. and like a a kite is tied to the cat tied to the cat's leg and mm-hmm. Sherman was like be more specific mm-hmm. and I'm like what do you mean be more specific like there's a cat tied to the, like a kite tied to the leg of a cat and he's like well what leg <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like oh shit um <laughs> the, the hind right leg mm-hmm. or something like I think that was what it says and like that line is so much stronger because of it which sounds so silly and almost it's almost ridiculous, but um, it's that attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my my work is just kind of like strange and, and abstract, and like sometimes lacks a, um, certain imagery because I'm really going more for um, atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But Sherman kind of taught me that you know you can do both. You can have all these details and still get across like your like unusual style mm-hmm. um, and still have like these unexpected turns you know they're not mutually exclusive so yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean he's great you know? yeah he's, he's good I wish I would have got to spend more time with him honestly yeah anyway yeah thank you I appreciate that just a window onto his writing and also on obviously onto your writing because it is the third stanza paragraph. It is so different from the rest of it. Actually, my follow-up question with, to the previous question is, you know, how come you decided to basically have a redemption story with that last stanza paragraph? Like, that's interesting that you view the last stanza as redemptive. I can see how it would come across like that. Mm-hmm. I think my intention was 
for the reader to just kind of feel in limbo there and maybe kind of scared because like the last stanza like there's the character in the poem is just going is just going through withdrawal and that's where the poem ends you know they don't like they don't get to start their new life yet. they've arrived and everything is so uncertain and i think that's maybe that's like there's two different types of people right people that maybe when they go somewhere and they have a fresh start and everything is new mm-hmm. like that's a wonderful and like a hope inspiring situation mm-hmm. um and there's some people that when they're in like a new situation it's like oh my gosh i'm just completely filled with fear mm-hmm. because everything is unknown to me mm-hmm. um and i think i fall more into like the the latter like i i, I push myself do new things and experience new things but have a lot of fear and anxiety about it um so yeah i'm curious like what makes it feel redemptive for you i think you know obviously you still carry on from the second paragraph as you were talking about how your mom sent you to basically rehab it's five lines and in the middle of the third line you're talking about sweating it out though you still call it brotherly love you talk about the heat which is stifling so the middle part seems more like the withdrawal going through the process of that and then you say you wait for the sun to go down and realize that palm trees against your stubbly sunset face is both a positive shadow and welcome home so i think those two adjectives positive shadow and welcome home is what make the end seem redemptive there is a ray of hope to it it certainly is much more hopeful than how the second paragraph leaves the reader there is there is a little bit of sense of not being sure when you talk about stubbly sunset face but i think with those two adjectives at the end it does make people feel like you have found somewhere where you feel comfortable without needing the substance yeah i think you're right <laughs> maybe it's like i think what i was also trying to get across like this feeling of acceptance just acceptance situation so i guess like being able to accept circumstances mm-hmm. is redemptive mm-hmm. and you're not fighting anymore mm-hmm. so yeah you know, i think you're right <laughs> i mean i think mean, <laughs> we're both right um, yeah I mean, I think that's I think interesting, though. Yeah, that's why I enjoy talking about it, poems with people because the feeling you get as a reader is not necessarily what the writer is trying to convey, just because you're coming yeah. from a different headspace. Yeah, and it's funny too, like the stubbly sunset baseline. I remember the early versions of this poem, like I was really trying to like describe like what the colors of the sunset were on the person's and like who cares you know like like, I think people know like I wanted someone to just see the word sunset and then just apply whatever their favorite sunset they experienced in their life was and apply it to a a stubbly face that's it (laughs) you know I don't need to like waste words on um, really um, because the colors are unimportant you know I don't know. I, I think it depends on the poem, right? Depending on what you want to write. Um, definitely. Yeah, it definitely depends 
on, on the platform, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Maybe the barrenness of it strips down that sense of hope, hopefulness. The sunset is, especially in Arizona, or Phoenix area anyway, is just like gorgeous, gorgeous. I have no idea what the heck is in the atmosphere with chemicals, but damn, so yeah, gorgeous. I, I know. I think it's like just a combination of maybe some pollution and also just it's naturally <laughs> like that. Because <laughs> I hear that like the sunsets in Detroit are really beautiful too. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think when I, I was in Detroit a few years ago, but I can't remember watching the sunset because I think like I headed out of the city and so like I, to my friend's uncle's house where like I was crashing because I was like I don't want to be in the city like at, at night. Um, not because like I'm scared of Detroit, but because like any city, if you're unfamiliar with it at night, can be a little strange. Right, mm. but yeah, I kind of like wish I would have like tried to witness that sunset now. <laughs> you can always go back. It's on the yeah, way, I know. right? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, Made a reason to go back to Detroit, though. From what I hear and of the seeing pictures of the architecture, it's actually, I mean, they're run down, but they're gorgeous. It's ridiculous. I mean, that city has lost a million people. Mm -hmm. right, it used to be like a little over 1.6 million people that lived there. Now it's like 600,000 something. Mm -hmm. Some of the neighborhoods are just shells. Right. Like literally and like metaphorically, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wild place. Mm -hmm. But like you can feel the history there. Well, yeah. There's a, definitely a lot of Americana that's there. And I think. Probably it does from again from what I've seen, picture-wise, there are some amazing architecture like old theaters and things because it was in the twenties. I think it was, yeah, it was in the twenties, right when it was booming. Um, yeah, and it's well because like the auto industry was there, and it's particularly right. well known for its like Art Deco architecture. Right. And I which, think the, which I the city that's really known for its Art Deco architecture is uh, is Miami. Which mm -hmm. like people don't normally think about, but it's all of those like uh, like little like hotels and stuff. Right. Um, I've never been to Miami though. I'd, I'd like to check it out sometime once the pandemic is over. <laughs> yeah, good idea. Because Florida yeah. keeps, I don't know. It always the numbers always seem to be going up, even though. I, yeah, and Miami just Miami Dade County just voted to allow in-person teaching is going to start up again. I think next month. Oh, that's brilliant. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, we're we're going we're going for you know like a record breaking that nobody else can break basically. I, I think that's what we're going for here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, pretty sad. Yeah. What made you decide to call whatever substances um, brotherly love? There's a couple of reasons. The substance in question here is heroin, mm -hmm. which has been big in Philadelphia for a, a really long time. Mm. There's actually neighborhoods that have just been like hubs for that since for 50, 60 years, like oh. the Badlands. Okay. Um, which, if you look at the Badlands in Philadelphia, there's all kinds of stuff written 
about it. It's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like brotherly love, you know, like Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, mm-hmm. but it's also like a really, really tough and unforgiving town, and it can be kind of bleak. Mm-hmm. It's a very blue-collar town, which is one of the things that I really appreciate about it. Mm-hmm. It does kind of have this this atmosphere of, I don't want to say like hopelessness, because there is hope there, mm-hmm. um, and it's a great city, but it's kind of like always under like New York's shadow, <laughs> um, which I hate because like they're so, so different. Mm-hmm. They are so, so different in terms of like the types of cities they are. Mm-hmm. It's something that you kind of like want to believe in, mm-hmm. but reality proves otherwise. Mm-hmm. It's like, I kind of want to believe that like, sure, like I can just like take drugs and that'll be my solution to living. Like I'll feel okay and I won't have to like deal with, you know, all of the problems that I have mm-hmm. because I'm taking this substance. But the reality is a lot different. And I feel like Philadelphia, being the city of brotherly love, you think it's like, it comes across as like, oh, it's the city of brotherly love. It's like very welcoming and everyone loves each other and everyone's kind to one another. And it's a very tough town. It's a very violent town and mm-hmm. it has a really dark history, mm-hmm. um, particularly in terms of like uh, race relations. Mm-hmm. Like red, red line was invented in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're familiar with yes with, yes. with that yeah mm-hmm. um, you can actually look up maps online and mm-hmm. they have, they literally grew red lines mm-hmm. like people of color like can't live on the side it's crazy and mm-hmm. there's that legacy of racism in that city which you recently was reared its ugly head in public when um, people were trying to take down the statue of Christopher Columbus. And also the mayor, the old mayor, Frank Rizzo, mm-hmm. who was known for running a particularly brutal police force. Mm-hmm. And that was just in the 50s and 60s. So there's a statue of him in front of City Hall. Yeah. Didn't um, they try to take that down? Like, that's it? gone. Oh, okay. Frank Rizzo's statue's gone. Mm-hmm. I stopped watching the Columbus videos because it was so upsetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am half... Italian American, right? Like my mom is 100% Italian, mm-hmm. um, and the third gen, third generation. Mm-hmm. And to see like these people, because South Philadelphia has like a large Italian uh, American community. They've been there for a really really long time. There's the Italian market, etc. Mm-hmm. To kind of like see these people protect this statue and not really understand mm-hmm. what it means. Or who Christopher Columbus was, or maybe they know and they just choose to ignore it because, like, having to learn something new and embrace the reality is so, so much harder for them to do than just ignore the facts and, like, try and preserve what they've known for mm-hmm. their whole lives. Mm-hmm. That's just a microcosm of what you see happening around the country. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, the future is not white males you know what I mean like deal with it <laughs> like <laughs> sorry um and, and I am a, a white guy right like that's how you know, I identify it it's not it's not hard for me to like realize and acknowledge this anyway this is like a totally other tangent like I'm, I'm just going off on like politics but no, I think fine. 
brotherly <laughs> love. It's something that like seems great on the surface, but is actually really sinister. Mm-hmm. And that's why like I kind of thought with that thing. Right. For a short answer. <laughs> right. From what you said, it seems like in your poem as well as um, in your life, Philadelphia is basically the stand-in for heroin. Yeah, I mean, like my early years in Philly, when I was going to Temple University, were pretty great. And I remember like exploring a lot of the city and felt, you know, I got to just experience like culture that I didn't get to experience growing up in Lancaster. Mm-hmm. which is still a pretty multicultural town mm-hmm. but like not on a on as large of a scale as Philadelphia is there's a town of about 60,000 people mm-hmm. and it's 70, 70 miles uh, west of Philadelphia so it's mm-hmm. not far yeah. but like those early years were like pretty great and I got to experience like awesome music and museums and food and I learned a lot but I was just such I was just such a kid <laughs> like I didn't, instead of doing drugs, I needed to be in therapy. Like that's that's what I should have been doing. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a place that like I don't know if I'll ever like live there again. As much as I appreciated that city. Right. What made you start? I mean, was heroin basically the beginning of the addiction, or was it something else? I started smoking pot. I think. When I was 12, like, I tried it for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't drink until I was 16 because mm-hmm. my father was an alcoholic. And mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to be like him. But, you know, I didn't really understand that, like, it doesn't matter whether or not, like, I'm drinking alcohol or something hot or something else. Like, I'm still putting a substance in my body mm-hmm. that's, like, changing the way that I feel and mm-hmm. the way that I feel about myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm masking something. That was just, like, the, the substance that really... Like, I was 21 when I tried it, and it was just because, like, I think I was going through, like, a breakup or something. Like, I can never deal with, like, breakups. <laughs> mm. I'm still not really good at dealing with breakups, which is why I'm alone. Once I figure out how to deal with that, then yeah. don't try a relationship again. But, um, <laughs> it's, it was, I think yeah. it's part of relationships. There is always a risk, and um, in a way, it's, it's part of it. I think you deal with it. I mean, whether whether somebody breaks up with you or, you know, you, you, you're not, couples do not usually die at the same time, so. <laughs> yeah, but it's like a normal person doesn't like say like, you know, I think uh, I'm really beat up over this relationship. I'm going to go try heroin. Like normal people like don't do that. Well, um, I think they drink, like, right? I mean, drinking is legal now, but yeah. it is really bad for your health. And it's it is, terrible. Yeah. It's terrible for your health. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, I think it was like from like the first time that like I, I tried it, it made me feel a certain way where I wasn't anxious and I didn't really think about all of the negative things going on in my life that I should have been addressing but wasn't. Mm. And it just became like my go-to. I just let, really like how it made me feel. That was like, that was the end. That was the end of that. Right. I think it's interesting that you mentioned this idea of it doesn't matter what substance, right? It's more the the addiction, the addictive, I don't know if it's personality or the aspect of addiction to have the highs and lows that, especially the highs, but that cycling 
of feelings because I chose my poem based on that idea because I don't I don't feel like it really matters what substance I mean obviously each substance will have a different effect on your body but it's not just the physical effects right it's the psychological effect that we're going for with substance is more going through a physical thing yeah and I and I got the feeling like um, from reading your poem that you yourself are a teetotaler am I correct or am I wrong yeah, for the most part, it's not that I don't drink. It's just, for the most part, I don't drink. So I'm going to read it, and then we can continue to talk about this. Okay, awesome. It's called Cheap Date. I've heard stories of the one drink that lasts from sober to blackout. The bitter taste of liquids holds no appeal, whether bittersweet or sophisticate, or a nose for bouquet that nosedives or a slump as colleagues intertwine intimate holes of armpits, no thanks. My addiction takes no scenic route, no palate nor veins required. Give the eternal quest instead, the unrequited, mm, the ambrosial pain. Dopamine highs from wayward glances, ambivalent commitments, the ah minimal gesture, Dial me up that just-out-of-reach tease. How does satisfaction ever compete with fool's gold glitter, the glaring promise? What desire have I the needle or bottle with a mind so fertile? A sea of half-smile can bloom a fruiting forest. A phantom solidifies into the god of Adonis. Need I but air and hints? The cheapest hits. Can you hear my clapping? No. Clap louder, oh, man. <laughs> Thank you. I read this aloud a couple times as well. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love how it sounds. Like, it was really fun to, to read. Thank you. Poem. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, like, where, from what place is this poem coming from? Like, why, why did you write it or feel the need? To, to write this particular piece. Like, I'm, I'm curious. I really like your poem, but I couldn't think of one to send you, so I just decided to write this. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so it's your fault, basically, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I do write about my obsessions here and there, my crushes and whatnot. But I don't think I've written it from this angle, at least not that I could recall. Uh, when I was trying to think of one to send you. And as I mentioned before, I basically have come to the conclusion that addiction is something that's, well, it's it's because a few years ago, I read that a Hungarian guy found out that his family is Jewish. At that time, he was a neo-Nazi, like a high-ranking one as well. Uh, yeah, you can look up this story. It was kind of amazing. And so he, he was a very devout neo-Nazi until he found out that his family basically hit their Jewish heritage because, you know, it was dangerous even after World War II because uh, a lot of anti-Semitism was not addressed, uh, especially in Eastern Europe, and but Europe in general, I would say. Then uh, a few years later, I was looking him up again, 
And I found out that he became a very adamant anti-Nazi. Awesome. Yeah, which is awesome. At the same time, I just felt like, okay, there there was always this sense of somebody who needed an ideology to attach very strongly to an ideology, whether it's being a Nazi or anti-Nazi. I mean, obviously, it's good for the world that he's anti-Nazi now, but, you know, it's the feeling of passion and, like, stubbornness and believe in, like, he's just totally right was the same exact feeling. So I thought it was also interesting, the idea of, and I'm looking at my family history as well, about the idea of addiction, how addiction can manifest itself in different forms. So yeah, that's how yeah. this poem sort of became. Yeah, it definitely can, can manifest itself in so many different forms. <laughs> yeah. The way that I read it is, is maybe like too simple of like an interpretation, but I read it that, because I mean, this is like your perspective, like this is about you, right? Mm. Um, I, I read it that, well, one, that your personal addiction Actually, do you do you have an addiction? Would you say you have an addiction? I mean, let me ask questions instead of making assumptions. <laughs> I feel like I have an addictive personality. That there are certain like loops that I'm in that I'm trying to get myself out of. I would say it has it doesn't have the same hold as what I would say heroin or from what you wrote. It demonstrated that heroin had a like very strong hold on you. I don't know how strong a hold my addiction has on me. I, I feel like I do get back into the, the loop of it, though. So maybe it is just as strong, but there are not as many physical evidences. Yeah, because the, the line, where is it? Yeah, what desire have I, the needle or bottle, with a mind so fertile, a seed of half-smile, can bloom a fruiting forest, a phantom solidifies to the god Adonis. The way that the poem came across to me was that you don't really need anything because you have your imagination. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of how I read that line. Is that like accurate? Is it is it close or is it more than that? No, it's very accurate. Okay. But besides like kind of having your imagination and it seems like also from this poem like your creative side and your imagination is a driving force, is something that kind of, like, not just, like, keeps going, but also consistently provides, like, that, uh, of course, you can't see that I'm doing air quotes right now, <laughs> but, like, that dopamine high, right? Yeah. Is, is that is that accurate? Because, like, I, I feel the same way, too, when I'm kind of in, like, a creative groove, whether it be, like, writing or photography or filmmaking or anything like that yeah yeah at the same time it's not just i mean there's the positive aspect with the creative outlets you know the writing and and whatnot and there's a negative aspect of you know meeting someone who might not be good for you but still imagining projecting all these good qualities onto them excusing bad things but bad behavior because you're not actually dating that person you're dating your version of that person i mean they're just like this screen basically that that you can project this idealized version onto yeah that's interesting 
mean, I guess maybe I've thought, thought of it like that before, but like hearing you say it, <laughs> that you don't, sometimes you don't date the person, like you date like your perception of who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think I can relate to that. <laughs> um, so what, what would you say are some of your, I mean, if, if this is like, off limits I mean let me know but like um, what are some of like your addictions or like unhealthy habits or something that you know you find yourself kind of falling into but don't want to fall back into yeah you want to talk about that a little bit I think that this is the relationship thing is my major one is to you know even though it's painful uh that sometimes I find I'm in just the rut of it. You know, when I think I've gotten out by, like, let's say breaking up with someone, I get into another relationship that's basically the same thing, just with a different person. You know, uh, I'm trying to wing myself out of it, but, well, A, there's a pandemic on, so it's a little bit... <laughs> it's a little bit to exercise that. Uh, in practical actions but I'm still seeing that it's it's in all kinds of relationships not just you know um, romantic relationships so the, the feeling of being taken advantage of by people or trying to please people who might not appreciate who I am for instance those are some of the symptoms of what's going on and I feel like a lot of people have that, especially in this country. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can relate, for sure. <laughs> I wonder, like, what type of people were going to emerge after this pandemic. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, when we can finally, like, help people again. Like, what's that going to be like? Yeah. Um, or will we ever hug people again? I don't know. <laughs> I think we'll hug people again. I mean, I yeah. it's done... It, it will make us wary. I think it will definitely make us wary and we will have second thoughts and I don't think we will be as... I don't know. I think it also depends on the personality, right? How much people are driven by fear. It's a lot, but it, the degrees will differ depending on the person as well. Yeah. Yeah. I miss not being able to, like, hug my friends goodbye and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you know? Like, that's... I was just thinking about that the other day. Like, I really wish I could, like, give people a hug. <laughs> you yeah. know, something so simple. Uh, somebody, somebody uh, else, uh, told me that one of their friends is very like touch uh, dependent, and that they got like a body pillow. They order one online, and it helped them. It really helped them. Yeah. That. A body pillow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like, yeah. That's, wow. I don't know, like, if that would work for me personally, but I see, like, how it could really help. Yeah. You know? And the other day, I just went through, um, I had to go to the pharmacy that was in a large store, and I saw someone buying a body pillow. It's like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> you should have went and gave him a hug. <laughs> yeah, well, I was sick, so. I, oh no! 
Uh, actually, I wasn't sick at the time, but I wasn't sure if they were sick. You know, we can't we can't hug people right now. I know, I know, it's silly. I know. Uh, I, I want. I mean, there's definitely times I, I am less dependent on touch. I, I would say. Yeah. So I think I'm kind of lucky in considering what we're going through. Uh, uh, in that sense, I'm lucky. Yeah. No, I, I'm not. Yeah, already. No, no end in sight. <laughs> well, I think that's probably why so many people have gotten pets, right? Because they can't hug people. I didn't even think about that. Like, my friend that I'm staying with, like, just got a dog last month. I didn't even, <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't even think about it. that was the reason why he got the dog. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't ask him out. I was like, oh, he got a dog. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really, like, explore the, the reason behind it, but... I don't. I don't know if people all know why they suddenly decided to adopt a bunch of pets, which is great for all the all the shelter animals. At the same time, you know, like what's going to happen to them afterwards? And there, there's a lot of pets that get abandoned. And pets, similar to people, they don't all like hugs. In fact, depending on their backstory, they might hate hugs. That's true. I think we're just as a as a nation and as a world, just in like this everything's in transition. Yeah. Like and and everything's always in transition way, mm. but it's just very pronounced and everywhere. <laughs> you yeah. know, like it's it's very very intense. Yeah. Do you have you been able to write consistently during the pandemic? Yeah, I, I again, I, I feel lucky in that regard because I've heard many people who say that they can't. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? I'm sorry. What about you? It, it hasn't been easy. Mm. I haven't really written anything. It's probably been like a whole month. Mm. It's been, and it's, I'm not usually like that. I'm usually pretty, fairly prolific. Right. I think I like edited that little chapbook I made, the 2100s, mm-hmm. and wrote a couple new pieces and edited those, and that was the last like big thing that I worked on. Yeah. It's hard because, I don't know, it seems kind of pointless <laughs> to, yeah. to a degree because there's so many, like, who cares about my writing when, like, you know, like, women's rights might just be trampled on. Um, six months from now, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, mm. like who? Like, it's I, I don't know. It's it's hard to to focus on my perspective and my story and my silly little observations when I feel like my energy could be more useful elsewhere. Mm. Mm. <sighs> so, what are you doing then instead? I'm just like you know, I like ran away from Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been taking a lot of photos. Um, that's felt good. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to like force myself to read mm-hmm. every day because that's something that I need to be doing anyway. But yeah. it's it's hard to just like do anything some days. Yeah, um, I know that feeling. And 
Yeah, and also like doing like some music stuff and some film stuff, mm. but like nothing like crazy intense and nothing that has like a concrete end goal or vision. Mm. Right. So I don't know. I, I I hope it changes soon. <laughs> I don't know. I think um, I think you know. Give yourself a break. <laughs> We're going through something that's unprecedented. We have none of us well maybe there are very few there are very few people who have gone through the 19th was it the 14 or 17 14 i think pandemic very yeah. few people have gone through that and, and still uh, alive um well, they'd have to be like 102 years old yeah <laughs> i think i remember reading the news about somebody who survived that and passed away from COVID. But, yeah i heard of it i think there was like a guy So it's, it's very difficult for us to kind of come to terms with it, especially given the modern world we live in. We're like, well, we carry little computers on our hands. Why do we have this craziness? And it's not, it's not impossible to deal with, right? There are actual manageable methods to deal with it to, to make sure that we were not number one in terms of death, number of people dead or number of people in, infected. But it's it's complete utter mismanagement of it. So, it, so it does it does seem very chaotic and sort of out of our hands. But so I, I don't I think you should like give yourself a break. Well, I mean, in, in America, it's just selfish and self centered. I mean, not everyone obviously, mm. but like a lot a lot. Of, it's like a cultural thing, like this individualism. Like there's. There's not really like this sense of community and caring about your neighbor that there are in other cultures. Like there just isn't. Like people just don't give a shit about each other in this country. It's really, really sad. It's it does really, really feel sad. that way. Yeah, it does definitely feel that way. Like I've never, I've never felt this sort of culture divide as much as I feel it or I see it now. Right with the the rah-rah individualism, even though, ironically enough, and I wrote about this in another poem, is that we actually despise people who are individualistic, like, unusual, I mean, like, Yeah. So it's a very weird kind of thing, like, dichotomy that we, as a culture, like, inhabit this, like, no, we don't actually really, we don't like people who are truly individualistic. We don't like people who... Yeah, it's like, be, be an individual, but like, don't be. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like, be an individual, but make sure that like, you, you know, follow all of these rules that mm -hmm. show that you're an individual like I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, oh, oh, okay, okay, <laughs> Mr. Gun Toting. Squaring, you know, jerk. <laughs> like, I, it's just because, like, none of my like, we, we all care about each other, and you know, we care about like our community and our artistic community, and we check on one another and stuff. And when I look at you know, other people that 
I think are typically like a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, not always, but that kind of just don't care about anyone except their perceived individual rights. Like they like just don't care. Like I, I don't understand how you can be raised to not care about the community that you live in. I, that doesn't that doesn't register with me. Like I, that's not the way I was raised. And even though like my neighbors growing up like weren't that cool, <laughs> you know, like I grew up in like suburban Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and it's not like my neighbors were lame or anything. It's just like I didn't have a close relationship with them. Yeah. But like, I also kind of knew, or kind of got the feeling that like, as we're, I was still living in a community. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was still connected with the people in my neighborhood and in my school in some way. Mm-hmm. And I and I would never actively do anything to harm the community in order to benefit myself. And it seems like that mentality is just rampant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you combine that with like toxic masculinity, white supremacy, and like outright racism, I mean, one you have Trump and Trump Trumpers, and you have kind of like the American political mentality of the right uh, in 2020, and it just like blows my mind. And People can't see the parallels between like Nazi Germany and this country right now. Like, are you blind? You know, it's like I just. You know, well, we're Americans. Like, the American education system is also in part to blame because we just keep defunding it, defunding it, yeah. paying teachers less, and putting less money towards schools. That like, of course, these kids are gonna, you know, graduate from school and not be able to. Uh, think critically or analyze the news rhetorically or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, <laughs> that's just my my little view on, on, on things, my little corner of uh, paradise, American paradise. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, you know, definitely feels that way. People are not recognizing because, you know, we've been. People are taught not to think critically, as you said. They're taught to not to recognize signs unless they're exactly the same signs. And there are very similar signs. I'm like, I don't know how you can, you know, because there are actual neo-Nazi signs that are coming up. I mean, it's scary. Yeah. So, but just going back to the podcast, I, I just, you know... Okay. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And before we end our interview, I, I would love for you to let us know how we can follow you and if you have any favorite readings or open mics or whatnot that you're going to. Yeah, there's cool stuff that like the NAU MFA program does, which I think most of those events I, I think are public. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, like the stuff done through the Piper Piper School, yeah. um, and I think like queer poetry is one of like loosely associated with, with Ye- them. Yes, um, recently, it, right? Yeah, yeah. Like myself from missing that. Those the things that are like on my radar. We're like, hey, like, like we're gonna do it this week, you know. <laughs> um, and then there was 
nine gallery that Shantae Orion was like a part of. Yeah, they kind of uh, shut that down even before uh, the pandemic. They even before. Yeah, yeah which is like a bummer. That was like a great like. Yeah, I went to a few of them, and in terms like, of. I got to, I got to hear like Jesse Sensabar read there. I got to hear uh, Bohan Lewis read there. Oh, like cool. crazy, you know? Like, yeah. That was an awesome. Like, that night. That was so good. Very <laughs> um, nice. You can follow me on. I'm probably most active on Instagram, and it's just at Mike Buckius. Mm-hmm. That's where like my photography is, and I'll like promote like my book or you know chat books or stuff on on there. Cool. Um, and I started to do Twitter more recently. Okay. Um, Again, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Again, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.